This podcast is brought to you by Don Green, the executive director at the Napoleon Hill Foundation and the newly released book entitled How to Own Your Own Mind. Please listen to podcast number 651 with Don and Greg as they discuss content that has been locked away in a vault since 1941 about the definite lessons on how to organize your thinking to attain success. In Greg's interview with Don, they speak about three main principles covered in the book, creative vision, organized thought, and controlled attention. There is a tremendous value from this interview with Don. Please listen to podcast number 651 with Don Green. You can also learn more about the Napoleon Hill Foundation by visiting www.naphill.org. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Um, Thomas, I do this each time I do one of these podcasts. I think I'm on podcast uh, almost 650 over the last 11 years of interviewing authors about their spiritual wisdom, their wisdom in life, their business wisdom, um, and health. And it's just been a wonderful journey for me. I think a great journey for the authors as well. For my listeners, um, Thomas, where are you joining us from? You in Connecticut? No, I'm in New Hampshire. I live in New Hampshire. uh, Okay. Near Peterborough, New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah. Um, I bet today a little bit chilly. Is that right? <laughs> well, not like it was on the weekend. It's 40 yeah. right now or 39, but on the weekend it was down to low 20. Ah, okay. So you guys are getting a heat wave. I was just in New Hampshire just literally two weeks ago and watching the colors and it was gorgeous. Yeah. So we have joining us from New Hampshire is Thomas Moore. Uh, he is a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author for the book called Care of the Soul. His new book, which was just released uh, in October, early October, is called Ageless Soul, uh, The Lifelong Journey Toward Meaning and Joy. And Thomas, for my listeners who don't know much about you, I'm going to just give a little bit of background. For those of you who want, you can actually go to his website, which has a gorgeous video to kind of open up um, this book. And it's at Thomas Moore, M-O-O-R-E, soul.com. And that's S-O-U-L.com. And he's number one best-selling author, as well as many other books uh, on deepening soul and uh, cultivating a mature spiritual life, three of which have been received the Book for a Better Life Award. Um, at turns in his life, he's been a monk, musician, university professor, and psychotherapist, and today he lectures widely on creating a more soulful world and on spirituality, and like he just said, he lives in New Hampshire. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show and spending time with my listeners, and I really love the way you start this book out, and you know, this book, as you say in your video, it's about trying to look at time in a different way, look at life in a different way as we grow older, And you start the introduction out with a student who's working on his Zen garden and he turns to the monk and he says, is there anything else? And then the story leads us into this concept of wabi-sabi, a Japanese aesthetic in which imperfection is something beautiful. I don't want to ruin the story because it's good. Can you impart the story and the significance of passing time and growing older and wiser? Well, Greg, thank you, by the way, for having me. It's really a pleasure. Um, I, 
I, I was just thinking of the fact that uh, when people get old, I think one of the things that that we um, paid too much attention to is how things don't work anymore. Like, you know, a lot of people have joint problems or they have arthritis or illnesses come along. Or, uh, memory is not as good as it used to be. And by the way, I have all of those things. That kind of happens with age, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, it's 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 uh, tempting to see uh, it all in a negative light. Um, I wanted to say, but with this story, that there's a way of looking at, at things not working and breaking down in a in a different light altogether, and that is this Japanese idea of wabi-sabi. I think we all can uh, identify with it, most of us anyway. When you go to a furniture store, you may really be attracted to a piece of furniture, like a table or a cabinet, that has been distressed or that is old and is uh, fading or that there are, there are many indications of having been around for a long time and be misused or things spilled on us or paint showing through, layers of paint. We like that so much. I'm, I'm a, a bit of a woodworker. I know that... That today, many people are trying to make things look, new things look old in that way. So there's an aesthetic that we understand whereby uh, imperfection and antiquity can make a thing actually more beautiful. And I just want to apply that to ourselves. If we could see that there's something maybe not healthy and maybe not working right, but beautiful about uh, getting older, even in spite of all the problems that come along. Yeah, I think the, the story was is that when the young man asked the monk and then he took a bunch of leaves and threw it all over his end garden, it was that was the in, in, uh, imperfection that we were talking about. And I just thought it was a great way for somebody to shift their perspective about what beauty is, right? And as you were talking about beautiful uh, imperfections and growing older. Now you, you have a great quote in the book from Ralph Waldo Emerson in which he refers to the ascension of state. Um, actually the first time I'd ever heard that. Can you explain what he meant means and how are you looking at aging? Because I, I, I liked this quote and I really liked um, the concept of staging. Yes, so ascension of state for him, it's, it's an old phrase. You know, it's 19th century. We wouldn't say that probably. But I think what he means is that uh, we, we, don't, we don't have to look at age aging as a constant progression or maybe a constant entropy, you know, going down. Like it's, it's not, not that we are aging minute by minute. He is saying that we age from one period of life to another, from one important experience to another. So it's more like steps or, uh, or phases. I think steps is a good idea, although his image is of the uh, caterpillar become a becoming a butterfly. So what he's saying is that as we age, it's not just that we remain the same person and we just tack on a few more years. We actually can, not necessarily, but can go through a transformation at many points along the way that is as remarkable as going from caterpillar to butterfly. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a caterpillar and you become a butterfly, that's not a small step. <laughs> that's, 
That's mm-hmm. a big move. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how we we do it in our life. If we could look at those moments, especially the big ones, where something has happened that really has moved us along, that is an opportunity for aging. It's not about getting old. It's about becoming more who we are and who we could be. Yeah, so true. And along that line, you know, you you said you look back at these significant events and you had a bit of a personal scare 10 years ago when you were on a book tour. I think you said you were up in Seattle and, you know, you're you're walking some hills and um, you learned subsequently that uh, one of your arteries was blocked. Um, obviously significant, uh, event. These are significant events in people's lives, whether it's a health or it's a death of somebody or change in a job or change in a marriage or whatever it is. What did this event teach you about aging and how do you now see life even just a little bit differently as a result of that? I think first of all, that the event actually did make me feel older which is part of aging. It's not the whole story, but it's part of aging. So suddenly I had to face the fact, oh, I'm, I've got a problem that older people get. You know, it's like I thought, I thought I'd always be young. You know, I would never actually have this kind of thing happen. But it did, so it had a big effect on me. And my experience is probably like a lot of people. I felt somewhat uh, sad and maybe even depressed for a while at that time. For a, for a period, not a long while, but for a period of time, which is an accompanying emotion to an initiation, to one of these ascensions of state, you know, to one of these, these uh, initiatory moments when you actually change as a person significantly. I felt I changed significantly at that time. And I, I began to take my life quite seriously. I mean, I always have, but in a special way, I think. And and I began to think more about uh, being an older person and what that meant. And it's just what happens is that you, you have an experience like that. I think I think most people, modern people today, just have a maybe have a, a blockage in their heart, and then they only see it physically. They don't understand that this also is going to affect how you see life and how you feel yourself to be. And so. Um, but I'm aware of that, and I felt I, I knew that I was going through something that would change the way I would orient myself toward life, and that happened. So I think it was it was a scary thing, but it was also beneficial, and that's typical of these changes that we go through as we age. They can be beneficial, but that doesn't mean they're they're pleasant. And I sense that from the story that you told that obviously some deep introspection, not that you haven't done that most of your life. I mean, being a monk, a musician, psychotherapist, you're obviously been very deep in all of this for a long time. And one of the things that you talked about in the book was your daughter losing a friend who was very young and he fell off of a mountain and, and obviously he died. And you, in reflecting on the event, you mentioned that aging in the sense of becoming a whole person is not the same as growing old. Can you speak about uh, to our listeners about their soul's growth and what it what's really you know you know how we want to grow this soul because I don't know if if many people and I won't say everybody are truly listening to their soul's calling um, 
I know they, they don't listen to it. They're maybe not using their intuition. What, what advice would you have for people? You know, um, this was this person's karma. It was his time to go. Uh, but the reality is, is that we don't know what kind of growth he had versus someone old, right? No, we don't. Um, but I don't think it's um, that is so important. We don't have to justify or, or measure a person's uh, aging because that, too, is very individual. I, I often think of someone like John Keats, a great poet in England who wrote uh, wonderful letters about the soul and what the soul goes through. I mean, he writes like a, like someone maybe in his 90s, you know, like an old sage, but he died at 26. You know, there we have an example of one of many, many, many examples of people who you feel went through a whole life cycle and in a period of time that was so short compared to what others might go through. And the other way of looking at it, I think, I mean, it's sad but true that I think you can find people who are in their 80s and 90s who haven't uh, haven't aged much. It works both ways. So uh, it's, it's a mystery. It's quite mysterious. But one thing that an aspect of what you said is that I think it's helpful to point out that the soul is not a the soul is not a thing. It's not like a spleen or a kidney. You know, it's not a thing like that. Soul is a dimension of our experience and of our reality and our identity. It's very important, I think, to talk about because otherwise we don't really feel our humanity completely. And so uh, the soul, the, the teaching is classical teaching is that the soul is both in time and in eternity. So there's an aspect of soul that is ageless. So that's the title of the book. There's yeah. another aspect of the soul that actually does go through time and is affected and is initiated. And that's very mysterious and an interesting thing. It means that it's not just I who go, who age as I go, but something that is the very source of my existence, which is you know beyond so mysterious and, and me and not me at the same time, this great mystery what the soul is, that that participates in this aging process as well. So it is certainly not about my myself getting older and my, my personality. It's about the very rock bottom of my being as I go, that there are changes going on that will affect me profoundly as I age. Yeah, I think you, I think you feel it in the essence of who you become. You know, it's what you're becoming as you're listening more and getting more in, in, intuitive about these things in life. And, you know, you write in many places during this book about um, your good friend, James Hillman. I actually uh, had interviewed James and I know his son, Lawrence, by the way. Um, and as you say in here, his writings on on the fact that we all have a young person and an old person in our makeup, that the two of these identities at times compete with one another. You call it pure and syntax. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And you reference in the book. Can you speak with the listeners about um, this and how to emotionally deal with this kind of, I'm going to call it the yin and yang of life? Yeah, it's kind of a gender yin and yang. You know, it's a, or old, it's a, a not gender, but age in and yin and yang. 
So uh, the words are Senex and Puer. Uh, so Puer means child, and Senex means old person. So um, Hillman wrote a lot about this, and it's very interesting work that he did. He, he writes about this almost as though the youth in us is like a person, one of the persons we are. Hillman's view overall was that we are not oneself, that we are many persons. And uh, and he he said then that we are among the many persons we are, there's our old person and young person. And these are with us. Like like even when you're young in age, like I mean in years, let's say you're you might be just uh, ten years old and you have something in you. You see it sometimes in kids that they seem older than their age, and that they're they're kind of quite mature for how young they are, or they have some mature elements anyway. So you can see that cynics. Or maybe the cynics might be wanting order and wanting tradition, or wanting to be in control. That kind of thing. Those are all cynics qualities, old person qualities, according to Hillman. And then there might be a young thing in you that's very adventurous and playful and and uh, takes a lot of risks or can't really settle down very much. Uh, there's that, that figure, too. And what Hilma was saying is that even inside of one person, like inside me, there might be the interplay of these, these two figures, the old one and the young one. And and often they may harmonize and they may help each other so that you don't get too old or too young. But on the other hand, they may also fight. So you, as, when you're young and doing something adventurous and trying to be really creative, the Phoenix figure in you might come up and say, well, no, you've got to be practical. You're wasting your time. You know, that Phoenix voice can be that uh, voice of, uh, of warning and criticism. So we have to deal with these two things. Well, I apply that idea of helmet to aging and say that one thing we can do as we age, we probably, most people, identify more with that old figure inside you as you get older. Sure. But then that can be too much, and you need the, uh, the, you need the youth. And it's part of you. It's just you have to tap into it and let that young person in you come out. And it may not always be beautiful or wonderful. It may be a young figure in you who's irresponsible and immature. But you you can't pick and choose. You get the whole package, you know, when you when you go for it. So I think that's one way to stay young as you as you get older, is you can allow that young figure in you, who's been part of you anyway, to let it have a place in life and don't don't lose touch with it. Yeah, I think the key is keeping this all of this in perspective. Um, and as you're spoken to um, and you hear the voice inside, whatever my listeners believe, your, your voice of intuition, your soul's voice, I believe the soul has a voice, that you're certainly uh, having an opportunity to keep this in perspective. And along that line, um, I've seen this happen a lot. You speak about a freezing point in life, a place where we get stuck, we get angry. You state that this suppression of even a small portion of creative potential can generate anger. And I've seen this in old people. Um, you mentioned that you see sadness in people who have a portion of their soul on ice, uh, ringed with slightly seething anger and never explodes, but it's always there. What advice do you have for the older listening audience today 
uh, for people that potentially are dealing with this. This is something, I don't know, it's almost like, hey, I see myself aging and I haven't completed my life. Well, I guess the question is, what does a complete life look like to you? Well, in, in, with, let's focus on anger first, uh, specifically. Um, okay. With anger, uh, a couple things, a number of things you can do. One is to uh, is to not explode in anger, but understand that that most of us have anger that has been building up throughout our lives. Things happen that really put us down. We get angry about it. We don't express it. We don't work it through. I don't think anybody deals with anger really well or perfectly, certainly. So we have a like a backlog of anger. And if you understand that, then you can tap into that anger too. It doesn't have to be exploding or being negative. It could be, and this is a very old ancient teaching, that you can tap into that anger as a way of bringing some edge and some originality and some uh, energy, uh, sharpness firmness to anything you're doing. So you can you can use that as the basis. Hillman did this. You know, he, he would say, I mean, I heard him say many times that the basis of his work was his anger. And he felt that and he believed in it. So what he did, I watched him closely. Uh, frequently he would he would uh, speak for his anger. He would he would say that, well I work from anger. Other people work from desire, longing, you know, wish, all those things. I work from anger. He said, everything I do is my anger uh, expressing itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we could all do. We could be aware that we are angry about something, and we've carried some anger with us, but we can use it in a really uh, positive and creative way. That's a good way. Another, there's another way altogether, and that is that some of that anger that's developed over our lifetime needs to be processed. And this is what I do as a therapist and you know what people can do. You can go to a therapist and work through. But you don't have to go into therapy, but you need someone to talk to where you can tell the stories of your anger. If you have a good friend and just tell the story, maybe more than one, of one moment where you really felt angry and and you feel you haven't really been able to take care of that, that particular moment and that anger, that can be a way of siphoning off and working through and and disposing of some of that anger that's been getting in the way when you're older. It's, that's great advice. And I think that, like you said, you don't need a therapist to do that. You can do that on your own um, with a good friend or confidant. Now, you state in the book, Thomas, that we don't, that you don't believe we need a strong ego or willpower but that you do need to love life and trust it cautiously, that we have two choices, life or death. You state that the way the soul's death is safer and some way more comfortable. Why do you believe that people kind of give up and allow their soul to die prior to them actually going through physical death? It's easier. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is easier. That's a good answer to that question, actually. <laughs> it, it's a good to give up, is what you're saying. Just kind of yeah, give up. Yeah, there, there are some rewards in giving up and in saying no to an opportunity to to really live, to do something creative, um, and to face life. You know, there are some rewards to saying no. They are that you don't, you're not bothered by it, and uh, you uh, you don't have to 
take a risk, and that's the reward, not taking a risk. Um, but the, the problem with that is you're not living, and that's why I call it death. You're not living. Living requires, to be alive requires that you face some challenges. They may be like a sickness might be a challenge, or it could also be a creative challenge, like to move on to a new career or to take on a new project, something like that. Mm-hmm. Something you might be afraid of and think you're not capable of. But if you can take that on and, and be willing to to go through that risk and, and risk something in the process, then you're alive. You know, that, that keeps you alive. And I think that's how this works, that life is not just this boring continuum of staying in existence. It's, uh, it's always peppered by um, opportunity and invitation to do something uh, special because life is, that's what I'm saying, this is going back to Emerson. So life is not this flat line that's boring. It is step by step by step that we have challenges. And we, if you can keep meeting those challenges, you really become a person. And that's what I call aging, really aging, not just growing old, aging. You age and you become someone who's really, really somebody. Totally agree with you that you've got to take the challenges. You've got to take the risks in life. I love what Elizabeth Gilbert says, you know, that the universe is filled with these great ideas and it's just looking for a human soul to connect with so that you can express that forward. And I believe that's so true that everybody has an opportunity it's just whether or not you're going to push them away or you're going to accept those great uh, things that come to you. Now, in your video at your website and on the boat, um, you have you actually embrace um, from the Tao Te Chung, and I hope I said that right in your book, you said, happiness is rooted in misery. In that spirit, you can say that cheerfulness is rooted in melancholy. Um Speak with our listeners, if you would, about the states of happiness and unhappiness, because I think melancholy, as you stated in the book, it's not a word that's used too much anymore. Um, The word is depression. You can talk about people going and the first thing that a a doctor wants to do is give you some Zoloft for depression, Um, but many times not necessary. As a matter of fact, most of the time not necessary. Um, speak with us, if you would, a little bit about that. Well, one of the problems is that we use this word depression for everything. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's shorthand, and it doesn't work very well. Because, and what it does, if you use the word depression, then you're, you're make, it makes you susceptible to medication when you don't need it. Uh, you don't need to medicate melancholy. I've been saying you, you don't go around and see signs, the 10 warning signs of melancholy. You know, it's, it's just... It's, just part of life. It's just—it's one of the emotions we have. The word itself—it means a black humor, dark humor—and it comes from medieval medicine, where they were talking about just these humors that are in every human being. So there's this melancholy that flows through our bloodstream all the time. That's a metaphor, by the way. Uh, it flows through us all the time, and uh, so if we think of it that way, then melancholy and uh, is part of growing older to be sad about getting older sad about not being as uh, active as you could be before of losing some of your friends and family members of uh, 
of all the limitations you find in life now, that melancholy seems to me to be entirely appropriate. Who should be happy about all these negative aspects of getting older? Very appropriate to be melancholic. So I think you just speak for it and you you experience it. Um, but you don't have to be only melancholic and only sad. That's the thing. That's that cheerfulness uh, is rooted in that. So if here's the way I would see this to put it psychologically: if your happiness and cheerfulness is a defense against your melancholy and sadness. It's not real, and it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. So, but if you allow yourself to be sad and melancholic, then that's taken care of. Then your cheerfulness and happiness will be real. It won't be a defense against the melancholy. You've allowed the melancholy and sadness to be present in you. You give it expression. Then you're free to, for happiness. But if you if you don't let that in then your happiness is a way to keeping it out. You, you try to act cheerful so that you won't feel melancholic. Well, it goes back to the old adage, uh, what you resist persists. And I think what you're saying is allow it in, have it be fully expressed, which I totally agree with that. And it doesn't do you any good to resist the fact that you might be unhappy uh, at certain times because of physical health or things that have changed in your life or loss of a spouse or, or a friend. Now you have a really good friend. It's Pat Toomey, who was a former Super Bowl champion. And then the other side of Pat, you say, is this intellectual person who people don't get to see as much. Um, you mentioned that it's difficult for a person to age with soul if the intellectual life is stagnant. What advice do you have for our listeners, people, because you're talking about uh, Pat's intelligence in this other area of spirituality in this story. What advice do you have for people listening to keep their intellectual life from getting stagnant? Well, we, so I think it's so important. Part of really a big part of being human is to have a mind, you know, to, to be always learning to prize learning, to see it as valuable, that this can make the whole of life pleasurable and make it worth living. I, don't, I think we've lost touch with that. We, we've become lazy about learning. Uh, and it's, it's too bad. It's not, it's not always been that way. Uh, in our Western history and in Eastern history as well, in other parts of the world, learning has been highly valued. Today, people seem to be proud of the fact that they don't know things. It's hard for me to imagine, but I think it's true. Uh, so if we could uh, somehow recover that, individually we can do this. Just because the culture is in that lazy period doesn't mean that as individuals we have to participate in that. What we can do is make an effort to learn things that we want to learn. If you want to learn language, really do it and really get into it. If you want to learn about the world and do it by travel, then do it. But don't just travel for unconscious uh, satisfaction. Then you know, um, travel to learn and and make sure that you plan your travel so that you can learn as you go and and have the pleasure of that dimension of your life. I don't know how to encourage people to to understand that that the intellect and mind can make your life feel worth living. A lot of people know that, but I think the great majority don't. 
I wish that we could bring that forward. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Ireland, and one of the big differences I see between Irish culture and American culture is exactly this one. The Irish haven't lost their love of learning. It's still there. I mean, that book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, was about how the monks preserve learning. Well, mm-hmm. they still do it. They still do it there. Here we don't. We don't have that. We, we don't honor people who are, who are into highly intelligent, and we don't try to, we don't go out of our way to be intelligent ourselves or have our children become intelligent. That's why I wanted to write that story about my friend Pat. Yeah, it was, a, it was an excellent story, and it really drove home this fact about, you know, as you get older, staying at least in, intellectually engaged versus just dropping out. And I don't think, as you said, it's not just older people. I think that, you know, our culture has um, lost its edge that way, whether or not it had it or not. But I do believe, you know, it's like me doing these podcasts. People ask me, you know, why why do you keep doing this? You know, this isn't something you get paid to do and you spend hours and hours because this is, to me, a way to get it out to the world. But it's also a great learning tool for me. And I couldn't actually have gotten 650 interviews and all the things that I've gotten um, out of talking with people like yourself. It's just constantly kept my mind active. So we're going to end our interview here or conclude it on this spicy subject, sex. You mentioned that the elderly sex uh, may be the most fulfilling and exciting of all uh, sex because it transcends ego, power, and control. Um. For our people out there who are aging and things in their sex life has changed, and um, what advice do you have? And especially for those that are confused about aging and their sexuality. In other words, the expression of that sexuality. Well, the thing to do is not to be materialistic about sex. It's not just a physical experience. And it's not even mainly a physical experience. It's about uh, enjoying the pleasures of being close to someone, expressing that closeness in all many, many different ways, and also being in the world in a sensuous, erotic way. By erotic, I I use that word in in a special way, I guess. I mean uh, something very positive, being in the world where you really love the world and take in its delights. Mm -hmm. If you can live that kind of a life, then... That, then your very idea of what sex is would, would change. Because even people who are younger uh, could deepen their sexuality by, by recognizing that there is such a thing as the soul of sex. I wrote a book about that many years ago, The Soul of Sex. It's, it's the, 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 this, our sexuality has such depth. And if you have that, if you can appreciate that if you, when you're younger, then when you get older, if there is any diminishment of your physical experience, it doesn't have to be much, but there might be some, then um, it doesn't make so much difference because you know that your sexual uh, satisfaction and pleasure and purpose is, is of the soul, it's not just of the body. It's very deep in your humanity. And so as you get older, you have an opportunity to even take that even, take it further and not be distracted by just the physical. And uh, although the, the, you can be physical, but maybe not, uh, 
it's not all about performance, sexual performance. It's about uh, being in the world generally as someone who can enjoy its beauty and its pleasures. And then if you're being with someone, if you're with someone in the same way, that's your sexuality. And as you get older, that part can become more important and you can get better at it. Mm -hmm. And it actually can be the, the pleasurable experience of just being with somebody, you know, you mentioned it in your video on there about time and how we're all kind of rushed for time versus slowing down and being on the lake in the video. And I want to remind my listeners to go to your website as well, which is www.thomasmoresoul.com. That video is worth watching, uh, very introspective. And I think that as you mentioned in there, you know, our society has, has sped up. Um, we we haven't been able to kind of slow this clock down. Technology has done a lot to actually expedite that, in my estimation. Um, be it good, be however you want to look at it. Um, on the other hand, it's uh, I think it's been extremely addictive to people, um, and they aren't taking that time. Any parting words for our listeners, uh, Thomas, about just slowing down and trying to enjoy life overall? Yes, I have one, I have one other thought. Um, in order to live a soulful life today, whatever age you are, but especially when you're age, you have to understand that the culture we live in is not a soul-orientated culture. It's, it's a culture that uh, is crazy in many ways, living out of its unconsciousness and acting out in so many different ways, full of symptomatic expressions, like sex is symptomatic, so many other things. So in order to really live this life, deeply satisfying life, you have to resist the culture. You have to step outside of it to some extent, not, uh, not be fully compliant with it, uh, resi resist it, be eccentric, stand out from the crowd, and that's part of it. It's not the whole story, but that's part of it. And you can expect that you're not going to really live this deep life that I'm talking about unless part of this is to say, I'm not going to fit in with a society that's really quite crazy. Yeah, and it can make you crazy. Well, Thomas, it's been a pleasure having you on Insight Personal Growth. I appreciate um, the new book, uh, Ageless Soul, for all my listeners, we'll put a link in the blog to Amazon where you can get this book. Um, we'll put a link to uh, Thomas's website as well. Um, we've been on with Thomas Moore, the author of a new book called Ageless Soul, The Lifelong Journey Toward Meaning and Joy. And I will have to say that um, the wisdom that's inside the book and the way you've weaved it all together is uh, exceptionally well done. Um, Thomas has lots of other books, but for those of you who want to take a deep uh, a dive into your soul and kind of slowing down and looking at life in a different perspective, this would be a great book for you to read. Um, thanks so much for being on, Thomas. Thank you, Greg, for understanding it so well. This podcast is brought to you by author Jenny Lee, the author of a new book entitled Breathing Love, Meditation in Action. In Greg's interview with Jenny, they discuss the fact that breathing love is a spiritual guide to living love as embodied in the practice of meditation. Through Jenny's personal stories, she helps her readers understand how meditative practices can provide you with a deeper spiritual connection to yourself as well as a more authentic connection with others in your life. I hope you enjoy podcast number 654.
with author Jenny Lee. If you want to learn more about the book and the author, please visit www.jennyleeyogatherapy.com. Listen to podcast number 654 to learn more about how meditation can help you to open up your true loving essence. Thank you for listening. Thank you.